0: Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Bright Spot Ed, LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama, providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services, and resources. Our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Shelley Vale-Smith. Today, we will be talking to Mrs. Lois Letchford. Lois Letchford's dyslexia came to light at the age of 39 when she faced teaching her seven-year-old non-reading son, Nicholas. Examining her reading failure caused her to adapt and change lessons for her son, and the results were dramatic. Lois qualified as a reading specialist to use her non traditional background, multi continental experience, and passion to assist other failing students. Her teaching and learning have equipped her with a unique skill set and perspective. As a teacher, she considers herself a literacy problem solver. Reversed, a memoir, is her first book. In this story, she details her dyslexia and the journey of her son's dramatic failure in first grade. She tells of the twists and turns that promoted her passion and her son's dramatic academic turnaround, as in 2018, he received his Ph.D., and I think it was from Oxford in some kind of really advanced
1: math. Is that right, Lois? Absolutely right. Applied mathematics is the term.
0: If it's very high, it's over my head. But uh, welcome, Lois. Thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you, Shelley. I'm delighted to be here and just talk with you and your audience. Well, you wrote this fabulous book.
0: Called Reversed, a memoir about your son and his experiences learning to read and the journey that it's taken you on. Can you start off by telling us what happened with your son when he started school? Because I think a lot of our parents are going to recognize some of this story in their own journeys.
1: When I sent my son to school in 1994, he was terrified and he wet his pants, he bit his fingernails, and he stared into space. Every day throughout year one, how I wish now I had removed him from school on day six when the teacher said to me, well, you know, he's so far behind. I don't know what I'm going to do with him. He does nothing but stare into space. What do you do? And I didn't remove him from school. I just sent him to school and he learned nothing. At the end of the year, as you normally do, you go through testing. The testing revealed he could read 10 words. He had no strength and he had a low IQ. That's the start of the story. And as you know, when you have results like that, the chances of getting out of that hole are really limited.
0: That is the kind of news that no parent wants to hear. So I would love to hear what happened next, because you were not satisfied with what the school told you.
1: Well, you, you know, you don't know. You as a parent... Have got very little to go on. You know, all you can go on is anecdotal evidence. He does this and this and this at home, but he's obviously terrified at school. But school has got the data, the hard data. We did the test, and this is what we found. And they don't like people to argue with. So that's okay. But we, we had an interesting set of circumstances come up because my husband's a professor. The following year in 1995, My husband had study leave in Oxford, England, and the family went to Oxford for six months. And I thought, I'm not sending Nicholas to school. I'll work with him at home. So I get myself prepared and I take a series of books called Success for All and I try to use them. And they were a total disaster because it was words, no pictures, no sentences, just words, read the word and move on. And Nicholas couldn't do it. And here's me getting frustrated. And as I'm getting frustrated, my mother-in-law could hear me. And she said to me, Lois, put away what's not working and make learning fun. And that made me stop and think, I can't do it because it's not doing anything anyway. So what can I do? What can he do? And I worked out, you know, Nicholas can do two things. He can rhyme words and he can see patterns. And with that, I was said, "hmm, write a little poem and see how that goes." So I wrote the poem and the change in our classroom was immediate because I didn't ask Nicholas to do anything. I read the poem to him. We read it again and again and again. We found the rhyming words, we did the illustrations, we talked about the poem. and as we walked the brothers to school, we would repeat and recite the poem. So it became multimodal and one poem led to the next and the next and the next.
0: It sounded like part of your son's if he was in the area of language.
1: Definitely. What I didn't know was that my son had ear infections from the age of 8 to 18 months. And what ear infections do is they actually change the brain because the brain is not hearing language. It's not hearing language clearly. So then you've got your, your child can't articulate what is going on. They don't hear enough words. It impacts learning and particularly learning of letters and sounds and reading and writing.
0: Wow. So how did you help him? I mean, I know the, the rhyme. I don't know that many people would think of doing that. And so how would parents know if their child struggles with language?
1: Their oral language will often tell that they have a problem. Their their sentences will be shorter. They won't have a wide range of language. And with Nicholas in particular, he was slow in getting a thought out through his words. So you would give him a question and you would watch him thinking and it would spin around and spin around and then it would come out of his mouth at an incredibly slow rate and often the words would be not be in the right order or he would mix the words up and so that way i was aware that there was a problem going on but that's all i knew and with that it it impacts how a teacher can cope with them in the classroom because they don't hear and do things at the same rate of other children
0: and it's really interesting that you mentioned the way that he talked and so yes. a lot of times people don't recognize. I remember testing a student for dyslexia. And one of the things that the parent said was they've always said things in this very strange eccentric way. And I remember talking to the child and instead of saying trash can, the child said can trash. Yes.
1: yes and
0: yes, yes. So that is something that maybe many people don't realize is associated with all of this language disorder.
1: Yes. And, you know, long term, you start to see the struggle Nicholas had with understanding the written language, because he said to me as an adult, I expected one word to have one meaning because that's logical. And he's very logical. Language doesn't have one word, one meaning. In fact, the words that struck me when I became a reading specialist was language is dynamic. And that's what throws many of our children.
0: Absolutely. So all of this really led you to become a reading specialist. And so what did this experience with your son teach you about teaching other students to read that you wouldn't have otherwise known? Oh,
1: everything. Everything. I started the story, you know, with the poems and what I didn't say with the poetry was that I wrote a poem dealing with the double O and it was about using the words Cook, Look and Book. And I wrote the poem about Captain Cook, the last of the great explorers and Captain Cook had a notion there's a gap in the map in the great big ocean. He took a look without the help of any book, hoping to find a quiet little nook. Now, as we are Australian, as you most likely hear my accent, Captain Cook became very significant in our lives. And with that poem, originally I did not have any pictures, so we're just saying it and saying it. Then we happened to be at a museum and we saw the globe from 1550 and it was like a light switch went on. Nicholas, look, there's a gap in the map, there's no Australia. And that put us, both of us, on an exploration, an inquiry explanation, because Nicholas said to me, and who came before Captain Cook? I said, well, that one's easy. That's Christopher Columbus. And then Nicholas responded, and who came before Columbus? His question floored me. I didn't know who came before Columbus, and it showed me that he did not have a low IQ, because that sort of questioning and that logic doesn't come from a child with a low IQ. And our world filled was filled with language, it was filled with seeing all sorts of maps, it's filled with questioning, and it was filled with a love of learning. Why are we doing these letters and sound things? Because we want to know about. And that was a critical part of my learning with Nicholas. So when I come to become a reading specialist, And I'm sitting at the library and reading through numerous articles. I'm reading from a point of view of the success of Nicholas. And I'm also looking at why did I fail in school? You personally? Yes. Well, yes, I did personally fail in school because I grew up reading words I could not comprehend. And I clearly remember you know, in third or fourth grade doing an SRA, you know, reading tests. The SRA ones, you read a passage and you marked it, graded it yourself. I read that test, the first level, I turned it over and I answered the questions and I got everyone wrong. That's when I knew I wasn't comprehending. And I remember clearly going back, To reread the passage and reread the questions, and I still didn't get it right. And the part that upsets me is that not one person ever helped.
0: Well, and I'm thinking through how many people in that same situation they read it, they miss all of the questions, give up, and are convinced that they're stupid and don't try anymore and so you're so remarkable in the fact that you persevered in the face of that without any help but how tragic that so many people encounter that and that is the end for them they really never overcome that.
1: It took me a long time to overcome and it was really only in high school that I really started to read and comprehend because subject matter becomes important So, and then you're reading for more for meaning than anything else. So that was a critical part of all that I did. And it took me a long time to pick up a book and really love learning and love reading like I do now. But, you know, all of the reading you do, every time you read and comprehend is a benefit to your growth. So now I read everything, but it's interesting. I still struggle with choosing books.
0: Well, I think that's pretty understandable considering your background. And your early experiences with reading. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. My son doesn't have that problem now. He just, he reads everything. He's slow at reading, but he can read and comprehend everything.
0: That is wonderful. You're really an advocate for the three E's, which once we explain them, will make perfect sense. And the three E's are experience plus emotion equals expertise. What can you tell us about the role of emotion in learning, especially in terms of reading?
1: This has only recently come to me and to my knowledge. Where do I start? Okay, my son graduated with a PhD from Oxford in 2018. And he's had many years of success in school. And I said to Nicholas, and I thought, you know, now he'll be able to tell me what happened in first grade. And I said, what happened? And my son cried. And his tongue went round and round in his mouth. And not a word emerged. And that, for the first time I recognised, the failure in first grade was a traumatic experience but we had not dealt with, ever. And, okay, since that time he has been getting counselling. But it was the first time I recognised there's a problem here. And then I said to him, well, I can't talk about that now. Tell me what happened in Oxford. And it was like his brain switched and the whole face transformed. And he's laughing because the time in Oxford for both Nicholas and I was such a time of fun and engagement as well as learning. And he laughed and he said, I remember the poems. And he actually named the poems that I wrote, you know, 25 years ago. And he started saying them to me. That's how important they were. And then he said to me, well, the mapping, the mapping taught me to love learning and I never want to stop learning. Then he started to giggle and it was the seven-year-old giggle coming up. <laughs> and he said, and I, you wrote a poem about a witch's spell. And I said, I did. <laughs> and he laughed, said, I don't remember. Anything. But the whole thing was just so funny for a seven-year-old. We did all these crazy ingredients and it was just the best. And so in looking back at Nicholas's learning, I realised for him to learn, to do that total turnaround, we had a change of experience that we were not only learning to read and write in our little classroom in our house, but we had moved out into the city. Every time we left our house, he was learning something. So it was an experience, the experiences and the emotions, it was all such a positive thing, that he is laughing, and the brain has to be relaxed to take that information in. That's one. And the third thing was recently I've come across the work of Mary, Dr. Mary Helen no Yang, and on her work on emotions, and she says emotions are not an added extra, but you need the emotions to access memory. And that's what I've done with Nicholas, all by accident. And so that was transformative to me, to see this long-term study of the child just go from absolute failure with no hope to one who just loves learning and can remember so much of what happened over 20 years ago. Well,
0: it's just really interesting because that also works in the opposite direction where. We're talking about positive experience and positive emotion, but if you have negative experiences and negative emotions, and I think most people are familiar now with the role of the amygdala and getting through this fight or flight moment, but then really even beyond that, just what you said with the positive aspects of emotion and the
1: correlation with memory. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And that's what we saw with Nicholas, you know, in first grade, you know, the inability to do anything. And I look at teachers and I look at the way children are coming in to the classroom and what they're doing, particularly the reading teachers. You know, we know we have to do structured literacy, but if that's what we're doing and the child isn't getting it and we haven't built a relationship with that child, we've lost it. And that comes first. Now, I have an academic paper right here. And this one is by, and it's by Nell Duke. And it is on the science of reading. And the first thing she says, the first thing we have to do with children is engage. And if we have not engaged them, doesn't matter how much structured literacy we're going to do, but it's not going to work until you have engaged them. You know, and I can tell a story about Nicholas and the reading teacher. Because after, you know, I was visiting him one when he's doing his PhD and I said, who do you, what teachers do you remember from school? I mean, this is what happened. And he said, oh, look, you know, Mrs. Raspaskovsky, my third grade teacher, I'll never forget her and other teachers. And I said, what about the reading teacher? And he goes, the reading teacher? Nicholas, you were with the reading teacher four days a week, one-on-one for about four years. The reading teacher. Her, she was not nice. I won't repeat the words that he said because people don't like it. (laughs) But, you know, these long-term things where he's connecting literacy with being not nice in a one-to-one situation, we have failed that child.
0: Yeah, because reading should be associated with pleasure and with all of the things that we as adults enjoy about it. And so when when children are deprived of that, then we really are setting them up for failure.
1: We are. So the very first thing is, you know, how are we going to engage them? And I do try and engage them in literacy in ways that the child will learn. And okay, this is the challenge for teachers and this is what we don't do. We don't give teachers time to think. Think and reflect on the lesson, particularly reading teachers. I became a reading specialist in Lubbock, Texas. My first child was 13 years old who'd spent four years in a phonics-only reading program. I taught him over the summer, and then the, the mother writes to the school districts and said, employ this woman. I got employed. I then went from school to school to school to teach children to read. I had 15 minutes between each school to get from one to the other. I'm teaching under ideal circumstances, small groups, for 45 minutes to an hour a day or whatever it was. The most important part of that was that 15 minutes between each child where I could do nothing but think what worked? What didn't work? What do I have to do? And that's what we don't provide teachers with.
0: I well, think that's a great point. You've obviously worked with high need populations of students, and you know, you've talked a little bit about what works with students in general, what else is needed for these students who've already
1: had these bad
0: experiences?
1: First has to be engagement. And you can't go past anything until you've got to engagement. That's the first. The second then is understanding that language is dynamic, that verbs have multiple meanings, that pronoun, every pronoun has meaning. And I've just written and published, published as well, an academic paper with Dr. Tim Rosinski on this. And I'm putting that in there for a lot of reasons because we make assumptions about student knowledge that if they can read the word he or she or they or them or it, they understand it and they don't. I had one student actually throw a temper tantrum when I asked him what the word it meant in the context of a book. The poor kid. Traumatized because I asked him the word. I said, It's okay. It's okay. Sit down. I started to write, pick up the blue pen, put it on the floor. Pick up the red pen, put it on the chair. And then, because you're reading it to them and pointing to every word, they do it. Again, it goes back to experience. They do it. And the one ends up on the floor and the other ends up in the chair. You go, What happened? And then you show, Ah, they go, Ah, this is not impossible. And it's it's a different level of thinking about language.
0: Sounds like a very structural level that many times we don't explore with students.
1: I think that I put my foot between the camp of speech therapy and literacy because the language failure for my students is huge. Understanding the difference between past tense, present tense and future tense is, is huge. You know, why do we use the word come or came? They look similar. They sound similar. There's quite a difference. When is it happening? And once you start to teach children, when is it happening? And teach those concepts of now. Is it happening now or is it happening in the past? It makes a difference. And when you look at our language, you know, even the words in the past, blow me away because it's it's such a gap between instantaneous I saw you, you know, I saw you outside and that was two minutes ago to no one saw dinosaurs. And now we're talking about millions of years. It's the same word. And it's getting that across to children in a way that says, you know this. I'm not teaching you anything new. This is information you have in your backpack. How are we going to bring it out?
0: Well, that's a really interesting idea about going beyond the decoding and, really helping students understand and, and it really made me think about the positional words like before and after a lot of times that is really a struggle for students.
1: At and by all your prepositions as well. Yes. Yeah that and often they are taught in element in uh, preschool and are explicitly questioned in those early years but because our children are then slower they miss it or they don't understand it. Often I think they don't understand it. And then it becomes quite a big hole in their learning that they don't know what to do. So
0: it's hard to build on top of a hole.
1: Ah, oh, you know, that's, that's what I say I do. I build foundational work all the time. And often once that foundational work is done, then it becomes uh, now we can build on it. And it's building on the language foundations and tying the language and experience together. And we can do much more experiential stuff about the word "saw," because it was the word "saw" that really pushed me to become a reading specialist. We returned to Australia in 1995 and my Nicholas goes back to school and I saw the person who'd done the testing and I said to her, you know, Nicholas has done so well. You know, he's he's really loving learning and just enjoying it. And she said to me, well, I've spoken to the reading teacher and he's gone backwards. And in fact, he's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. I cannot respond when someone says something like that to me. That's my dyslexic brain just shuts down. So I went home and I thought about it and I came back to school within a couple of hours and said, you can call him whatever you like, but if he is the worst child you've seen in 20 years of teaching, don't expect him to learn like everyone else. That very afternoon, Nicholas comes home with his ten high-frequency words or sight words. He knows eight of the ten. He doesn't know now and he doesn't know saw. And for saw, teacher gave him the same two sentences she gave every other child in her care, and the sentences were, I saw a cat climb up a tree and I saw a man rob a bank. Nicholas read, I saw a cat. No. I was a cat. No. I had a cat. No. And I asked, and then he just handed the paper to me. It took me a long time to work out what was happening. But this is this was the crux of my teaching and my anger and my belly, <laughs> the fire in my belly. The teacher had given the abstract meaning of the word saw only. Failure number one. She hasn't given him. This is an odd word. It's got three meanings. This is the way we have to teach it to these children. That was one The example she gave, I saw a cat climb up a tree. Our family had just spent six months in another country and she didn't use an example from that that time. She used a cat climb up. And in fact, we're living in Brisbane, Australia. There were very few cats in our suburb because cats eat wildlife, so people don't have them. There are bats, there are birds, millions of birds. There are possums that were on our roof regularly. Letting us know they were around and we were invading their territory. She didn't use any of those experiences which the child would have understood. And then when I go back to college to get my degree, what do I read? I read The Deficit Theory by Brian Camborne. And it said, When children don't learn to read, we say, Well, look at that child. Well, look at his IQ. Look at this, look at that, look, he hasn't done that. You name it. And that's exactly what happened to Nicholas. Instead of saying, what do we have to change about the teaching to teach this child to read? And that paper is what drives me today. Are we giving complete examples of words to children or are we just expecting them to understand? And are our children engaging with the examples we have provided? And that one is never a guarantee. I use this example, I've used it with every child this child's not getting it. What am I going to do? Blame the child or say, what else do I have to change?
0: I think that's a great point about the cultural relevance of it also. And so I just remember I used to do progress monitoring with Dibbles and there was a passage about a Pueblo. And so my little children in rural Alabama did not know what a Pueblo was. And so there was no way, I think probably, that they were not going to stumble and struggle with that passage. Number one, they had no background knowledge really of that. But you know, there's certainly a huge argument around the cultural relevance of much of our instruction. But I do think that it makes a really good point about the language part of it.
1: I did my master's degree up here in upstate New York, where I now live. I took a long time to do that, but all the time I'm learning. And one of the assignments was to just journal every week. Doesn't matter what you write about, journal about it. And something had happened in in one of our classes about early learning, and it caused me to write about my early learning. I'm old, but I grew up with the books Dick and Jane. Do you know them? I grew up with them. Well, see, my sister learned to read with them before she went to school. That's another story. As I said, I I could read the words I couldn't comprehend. And as I was writing this journal article or the journaling, I'm realizing why I failed. The only thing I had in common with those children was the color of their skin. We lived in Southeast Queensland. It's hot for nine months of the year. We were poor. No one wore shoes. We lived on a farm. Our cats were feral. Our dogs worked for us. Never did we have a... Perfectly clean, white dog. My mother's hair, what was it? Up in a bun, quick, short, milking. She was working morning and night. Never did my parents wear those clothes. And it left me alienated. I didn't know who they were, where they belonged. And if someone had asked me, I think the worst answer you can give is they belong in a book because it means you've got no idea about what's happening. And then it impacts your writing. I can't write like that. So I'm not good enough. It was really interesting to do that exercise as an older adult and reflect on all that went wrong. And it was alienating for me. So when I see a lot of these standardized texts coming for children, I wonder what impact it's having on them.
0: Very interesting. That kind of leads me to the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is... That you created a seminar series that looks at the psychological trauma of failure in school. And that's something that certainly we're aware of, even though probably most people don't associate trauma with learning. Who experiences trauma in school, and what are some of the lessons that you've learned about helping students who have experienced it?
1: I would think anyone who fails in school would experience some level of trauma. And the greater the failure, like my son, Nicholas, you know, I can't even talk about it. But what happens is that trauma, what we do to children often unwittingly lodges itself in the brain is an experience and we can't move from there. And if someone talks about it, it actually takes us right back to that situation rather than saying, moving it to a memory and to language which is what we have to do. So I did this series. I've connected with a large number of people and they talk about what happened in school. One student from RPI came and talked on, RPI is Rensley, a Polytechnic, an engineering student, and he talked about the IR words and ex- an experience that had happened to him. It's crying, crying over, have we learned these IR words yet? You know, and he's in his early 20s. So through our teaching, we unwittingly put children in positions. They can't remember it with what we have done. They have tried really hard to do it. They've left in tears. They still haven't got it. That's trauma. And 10 or 15 years later, they still remember that reaction. We have traumatised. I mean, we've got another series coming out in September, October, And we are talking to Mary Helen in Orden O'Yang. And I just amazed at all of her work that she has done because we do need to tie emotions with learning. But children aren't going to learn when they're terrified of getting an answer wrong.
0: And I was just thinking about so many of their parents experience the same thing in school. And so when we bring parents up to the school to talk to them about their child, they're already terrified From their own trauma, and then bringing them in and talking to them about their child is even further traumatic. And so I think that we have to really be aware of helping people move past that trauma. And especially now that we know more about teaching, reading, and acknowledging the role of emotion in being successful.
1: It's about learning, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we haven't even got to reading. It's about learning first. Uh, you know, and I was really privileged to be able to tie Nicholas to the learning and to the reading. I mean, that took time. No teacher would ever do that. Sit down and write the amount and the panic that I had and all the rest of it at the time. And you had these conflicting emotions that what I was doing with Nicholas was phenomenal, but I could see it was only baby steps. It's only baby steps. How is he going to get there? One lady I've spoken to recently said, you turned him around in that six months and caught him up. That's not true. I turned him around and gave him the skills to make him want to succeed. And once we started that, that's all I had to do. And then the growth came over time. And that's all I can say. We don't really need kids to be the best at third or fourth grade. I mean, it's really good that they are. And we're pushing them so much at these early ages. But when do we want them to really explode is high school. So we want them to have positive experiences, to enjoy the learning so that they can, when they're ready, become totally independent learners and say, yes, this is phenomenal.
0: Well, and we know so much more now about helping them to be successful from day one. And so there's really no reason for kids to be traumatized by these experiences because we know now how to help them experience success from day one and never have those those kinds of trauma experiences that you and your son and, and so many children have experienced. So I hope that parents are listening and know that there is something else out there besides that.
1: We are the adults. I've been asked to write a chapter on transformative learning, which is really what I did with my son and what I did with my students. The challenge with transformative learning is that the child is sitting in the classroom and they can't say to us, I hate what you are giving me. They can't say, I don't get it. I don't understand it. All they can do is come back the next day, either knowing it or not knowing it. And the real challenge is to interpret the child's behaviour and say, what are they doing? And if they don't get it, we have to acknowledge they didn't get it. They've worked really hard. Again, it comes back to us. What else do I have to do to teach this child to read? I agree.
0: For everyone who's listening, I hope that you check out the fabulous book and it's called Reversed. And Lois, I just thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate what you're doing and have done for children, teachers, and families. You're an inspiration. Thank you very much. I just see it as one continuous challenge. Yes. Well, we're all on this really long journey. Join us again next week for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Networks podcast.